Welcome to the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast with Valerie Francis and Leslie Watts. This show is all about getting writers writing. There's a story inside of you that's trying to get out, and even though you love this stuff, sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against the wall. Well, the StoryGrid method is like a decoder ring, and it will help you crack any story you can dream up. The hardest part is knowing where to start, but that's what we're here for. We've been where you are now, and we can help. Here on the show, we'll give you a practical approach to the StoryGrid method so that you can put it to work. If you want to crack the story code, roll up your sleeves, and let's get started. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 10 of the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast. My name is Leslie Watts. I'm a StoryGrid certified editor, and I help fiction and nonfiction writers craft epic stories that matter. And my name is Valerie Francis. I'm also a StoryGrid certified editor, and I'm a writer, and I specialize in stories by, for, and about women. So this week, Valerie, we are studying the exposing the criminal scene in a crime story, The Body in the Library by Agatha Christie. And this scene appears in chapter 18, which is the final chapter of the book. We're focusing on scenes this season because scenes are the basic building blocks of story. So if you want to write a story that works, you must be able to write scenes that work. So I'm going to go over the the overview of the story. This is a global crime story. We call it a cozy mystery. That's the subgenre. It has very specific conventions. Uh, But the descriptions are not as crisp as our normal five commandment description because this story is a little bit different. So in the beginning hook, the dead body of a young woman is discovered in Colonel Bantry's library and Mrs. Bantry calls in her good friend, Miss Jane Marple to help solve the mystery and restore her husband's reputation. Marple agrees to help and examines the body before the superintendent arrives. The victim's sister, Josie, identifies her as Ruby Keene, a dancer who performs at a resort hotel. Now in the middle build, the investigation ensues along the lines of typical motive and opportunity. The victim was the companion of Conway Jefferson who had decided to adopt her and leave the bulk of his money to her. Everyone who stands to gain from Ruby's death has an alibi. At the midpoint, another body is found in a burned car in a quarry, presumed to be a local teen girl who'd gone missing. The clues lead Marple and the police to Basil Blake, but Marple knows he's not the killer and she informs the police. In the ending payoff, Miss Marple reaches her conclusion by expressing her gift, never accept what you observe or hear at face value. The police set a trap using Jefferson as bait. The killer reveals herself and Marple explains all in the scene we're about to discuss. 
Okay. So we're going to start by analyzing the scene, which will give you some clues about what's happening here. I'm going to use the word clues a lot in this episode. <laughs> I hope that's okay. So Valerie, what function does a scene like this serve in the story? So here we're talking about the editor scene type. What do we have going on here? Well, you mentioned it right off the top. This is exposing the criminal. It's the core event. It's this is a whodunit and we have to figure out and we have to find out who done it. That's what this scene is all about. It also, it can be in this scene or in another scene, but this, this sort of part two of this core event, especially for a cozy mystery like this is explaining how the crime was committed. So it's the whodunit and the how done it that come together to really satisfy the reader's expectations for a cozy mystery. Excellent. So then if we think about what kind of scene this is, what is the writer's scene type? I have called this one, I've gathered you all here. <laughs> right, this is a scene that brings the interested parties together to provide the answer to the puzzle. Now, we might also say that this is a scene where Marple is showing her work. Um, I was trying to think of other types of scenes that are similar. I was thinking of the reading of a will. I was thinking of the announcer of uh, the winner of a contest, but basically a scene where you have lots of individuals and you, someone is revealing something that people have been thinking about and people really want to know. And I think in a cozy mystery, well, uh, let me take that back. I think in a, in a, a mystery, not specifically a cozy mystery, but in a mystery, what's happening here is the person who has solved the crime, whether it's an amateur sleuth or uh, a consulting detective or the actual detective, what they're doing is demonstrating their intellectual prowess. And that's really important. We want the problem solver to be a little smarter than we are. So if you look at the four types of protagonists, right? I've talked about this before. Um, you've got the, the anti-hero, the underdog, the everyman or every woman and the hero. And the hero doesn't necessarily mean a superhero. It's just someone who's at a, a level that's higher than the reader. And in these types of stories, that's what you have. Someone who's a little smarter then we like Sherlock Holmes is a lot smarter than we are. He's way more observant than we are. And that's why we read the stories because it's really cool. It's really fascinating to see how that kind of a mind works. Here with Miss Marple, it's the same because, and you know, Agatha Christie kind of, she created this whole, this whole genre of British mysteries like Jane Austen created the whole romance industry with Pride and Prejudice. Agatha Christie has come in here and created, I mean, is it keeping British TV going these days? I'm not sure. I can't get enough of it. I love it. So I, none of this is said in a critical tone at all. We want more Miss Marple. We want more Poirot in they can actually be those characters. That's why they have uh, Sophie Hanna now doing legacy books with those characters. But we want 
other stories that have the same types of characters. So we want to see how is it they were given the same clues that we were given and we couldn't figure it out. And we don't want to figure it out. We want to try and figure it out, but we don't want to actually figure it out. It's, it's a disappointment if we figure out who done it before we get to the end. Um, and, and this is, I see part of why Agatha Christie is so good at this is that she has a huge cast of characters. And when I read the girl, the girl on the train, it's, that's the book that made me realize, oh, this is why Agatha Christie has so many characters. Cause in the girl on the train, you figure out who done it pretty quickly. Um, just simply because there's not that many options. So I think it still works in the girl on the train because it flips the narrative drive over to dramatic irony. And you, you want Rachel to beware of the, the monster behind that door kind of thing. Um, in a, in a, a mystery like an Agatha Christie novel or any other type of mystery, if we figure out who done it and say halfway through, and we keep reading, then all the clues, then we're either confirming our suspicion or not. When we, when it looks like our suspicion is right, we may not finish the book. Or if we get to the end of the book, we'll go, yeah, well, that was pretty easy to figure out. So we want, like people who do crosswords and Sudoku puzzles, and like, these are the people who love these types of books because they really want to have a challenging problem to solve. So yes, I, I, I gathered you all here. I agree that that is a really great way of categorizing this scene because Miss Marple is sort of holding court here, right? To, to, to give her opinion to the other characters and by extension to us. But in a cozy mystery, it's, it's specifically done. It's even though she demures and it just downplays her intelligence. She's really actually displaying her intelligence. And it very much is an elementary, my dear Watson type of scene. Yeah. There's even a reference to that at the very beginning of the scene. One of the police officers says, okay, I'll be your Watson. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> There's lots of references in this novel to other writers. And this is something I'm reading Magpie Murders, right? Or Magpie Murder or Magpie Murders. I can't remember if the murder is singular or plural in the title by Anthony Horowitz. So well done. One of the best murder mysteries I've read in a long time. And he does that throughout the book. He is very much in the Agatha Christie school of mystery writers. He writes, he writes uh, spy stories too. But his, uh, his, his crime stories, his mysteries are very much of this um, ilk. Nice, nice. Okay, so what does this scene type accomplish within the context of the whole? I mean, obviously we talked about this is the core event, we have to expose the criminal, but what else is happening here? Well, and we just talked about this. It's, it's Jane Marple, showing us her train of thought, how she connected one clue to the next or how she thought about the crime. What is it that didn't sit well with her? 
why did she suspect this character and not that character? Why did she think that this piece of news or evidence was to be believed and this piece wasn't? We just want to know how she how she did it. It's the how done it part. Right. And the the cool thing about this is when you've got those extra characters in the scene, right? We don't want to just see Jane explaining this to one uh, single other person, right? We have all these other people in the room because there's a bigger point to the scene and the story. But one nice feature is, and this is a great, um, this is why Watson is also a great device in the Sherlock Holmes stories, is that the characters in the room can ask the questions the reader would ask. So it's not there's a lot of monologuing going on in this scene. Yes, there before. is. <laughs> but it would be even worse if we didn't occasionally having a character going, but Miss Marple, what about this? You know, that kind of right. thing. Right, right. And, you know, this is the last scene of the novel. This is where all of the loose threads are being tied up because these are not open-ended stories. They're very closed-ended. All the... I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. There's no, um, even if you're dealing with a recurring character like Miss Marple or Poirot, this particular case is closed. It's yes. done. So that's part of what is happening here. All of these loose threads and all the questions that, like you said, that the reader has had, now you have this room full of people who gets to ask the questions on behalf of the reader. So there's a ton of monologuing but we don't mind because, and we don't even notice, to be honest, unless you're gonna sit and analyze it like we are, because <laughs> you're getting the answers to the questions and all the questions in terms of narrative drive that you've had that, that Agatha Christie hasn't fully answered for you or maybe not answered at all to keep you reading well, there's no reason to keep you reading anymore, right? The right. book's over, the story's over. So now giving you all the information, but rather than a straight info dump, which would be boring, they're, they're sort of uh, dramatizing the exposition. Right, right. Okay, so then just a couple of details about the scene, things to think about. There are eight onstage characters Ultimately, there are a few people who wander in at the end, um, and there are at least 20 offstage characters. I love it. It's crazy, right? We, it is literally pulling every thread from the beginning to the end so you understand how everything fits together. And the scene is taking place in the majestic hotel, right? This is a kind of resort hotel. And what's really interesting to me is that we don't know what room we're in. Um, in fact, this story as a whole is very thin on setting, but she's published 30 plus books by the time this book comes out. And the locations are ones that are really typical of cozy mysteries. We've got the Coastal Resort Hotel. We've got the Village Squires Hall. We've got, you know, the little cottages. These things, we have the 
we have the picture in mind. She doesn't have to add a lot of detail to it. So that's interesting. You probably can't get away with this contemporary writer until you've got 30 successful books under your belt. <laughs> right. And by now, I mean, so, so that was Agatha Christie of the day. And by now, in our day and age, we've been raised on this stuff. So we're, we can read Agatha Christie and fill in the blanks ourselves. That said, because it's Agatha Christie's world, it's, you know, we, we've just seen it so often. And by the time we're at the end of this book, we don't really care where they are. We just want the, the answers to the questions. But, you know, one of the things, Leslie, and you and I have talked about this before, one of the things that writers today in 2020 and beyond have to do is separate ourselves from all of the other books that are out there in our genre. And there's, you know, 8 million or however many books on Amazon. So how are you going to separate your work from somebody else's? Well, one of, and especially if you're writing a cozy mystery, there's a bazillion of them out there. You need something that's a little different. And your setting can be one of those places. You can, like Cabot Cove is in New England somewhere. <laughs> um, so they, they took the Agatha Christie style, cozy murder mystery and brought it to the US. So right away now that allows the writers to Americanize the environment. So you need to describe it. And it separates Murder, She Wrote. And Murder, She Wrote stands on its own two feet as its own beloved thing that's in the same family of story, but is separate and unique. That's a really interesting point, Valerie, because normally we do think of cozy mysteries. They're, they are milieu stories as much as they are these puzzle stories. We are interested in the environment. But the interesting thing about this one in particular is that the environment is the people, the mm -hmm. characters, right? That's the, that's the, feel that's the that's the what's important it could be any village it could be any resort but these particular people are what sets it apart yeah okay so what's the point of conflict here valerie what's going on in this scene aren't we just resolving everything well yes but no <laughs> Um, you know, we've already talked about this, a, 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 you know, a, a bit in that we want to see the inner workings of Miss Marple's mind. Now, there's a point here, and I'm looking at the notes you have in the document, uh, Leslie, and I had notes similar to this that I deleted from the document because I thought, oh, no one, no one wants to hear me go on this tirade again. But I see that you got on the same tirade, so I'm going to go there. <laughs> and that is... In this, how do I put this? In this story, Jane Marple is the elderly, busybody woman who immediately, she's clearly the smartest person in the room, but she can't own that. She has to downplay it 
and say to the investigators, oh, well, you'll think my methods are uh, silly and amateurish. No buy, no buy, you're not amateurish. You're an amateur sleuth in that you're not officially part of the police force. Had she been born in a different era, she, she would be running the police force because she sees things that others are not seeing. She's putting pieces of the puzzle together that the others just don't see because of their, their bias and their, but their worldview actually, because part of the issue here is the dress that Ruby is wearing and it doesn't make sense. And it's the teeth uh, of the two girls. So that's how Miss Marple figures out that the bodies are switched, which immediately leads her to, spoiler alert, Josie as being in on this somehow because Josie identified the body. So that is a very female perspective. So but since all the officials here are male, they're not picking up on the teeth, although they should have really. Uh, they're, they're not picking up on what a woman would wear to a particular event. That's a, that's something that in this era, Miss Marple is able to bring to the, to the crime that the men are not able to bring to the crime. So the point of conflict, I think, is it, it's, it's sort of society's expectations and assumptions about what a woman of Miss Marple's age is, like what they expect her to be versus what she really is. And if she had walked in there um, with her head held high and, you know, listen, boys, here's how it is. They wouldn't have listened to her. She knows how to play the game. That's where the conflict is. She knows how to play the game to get them to listen to her. Poirot doesn't do that. In fact, he, I've been watching a lot of Jerry Seinfeld lately because he's got a new book out that I put on my Christmas list. Um, so, of course, because I looked up the book now, Jerry Seinfeld is in my feed everywhere, right? <laughs> the algorithms got me, but that's all right. And in one of the interviews, he said, you know, I don't need people to tell me I'm good. I know I'm good. I know I'm funny because I've worked really hard over 40 years to learn how to be funny. I'm a professional comedian. That's Poirot. Poirot doesn't need anyone to tell him that he's clever. He knows it. He knows he's the smartest person in the room and he is not afraid to voice that. So to me, that's where the conflict in the room is. What do you think, Leslie? Yes, that's that's excellent. So, I mean, because right on the surface, everyone just wants to know. They want to get they want to get the goods. Oh, Miss Marple, somehow, some way, oh, maybe she was paying attention. Um, solved the crime, right? So we want to know, but. So that's on the surface, but to me, beneath the surface is this desire to be reassured that the solution makes sense, that the criminal has been dealt with, that justice has been restored. But beneath that is exactly what you're talking about. That's like the deep, deep, deep message of the story. And, and 
Miss Marple wants some acknowledgement and appreciation for her skills and methods. They're not typically appreciated in those in law enforcement circles, right? And so, of course, and it all ties in with the with this the concept of the crime story that I'm going to talk about in a minute. And this idea that we have to do what's proper. We have to conform to, you know, society's norms because that helps keep everything in check. So how does she get recognition within that system? And that's absolutely the point of conflict here. She's seen really as a marvel, isn't she? Yeah. Like, I can't believe that there's an older woman who's intelligent. <laughs> it's like, now I'm reading this from my perspective in this day and age, right? So yeah. it doesn't make me stop reading them. I, like, I'm, this, I'll just be honest with you. <laughs> I love these stories. Um, but if you're a cozy mystery writer, this is the type of stuff you can work with to modernize it and make it yours. So you can still have an amateur sleuth, but and the amateur sleuth can still be a woman, but a woman who owns her intelligence happily and says things like, well, boys, you know, male detectives, you, you weren't able to, I was able to solve the crime because I'm different than you are. And I have a different view of the world. Not that you're stupid because the, the, the officials always come out as being sort of bumbling idiots, right? So that's another way you can invent, reinvent this and, and update and innovate this. The investigators don't have to be bumbling idiots. The whole thing could simply be you have different worldviews and that's what's needed to solve this crime here. Definitely, definitely. Okay, so let's move on to the story grid scene analysis questions. Valerie, you're gonna talk us through the ease. Ready. So these are the four questions that we go through to figure out the scene event and the scene event that you put on your spreadsheet. Now, what you put on your sheet is up to you because this is a tool for you to help you write your novel. So unless you're planning on submitting to StoryGrid Publishing, you don't have to get too stressed out about this. But we're, we've included these in every episode this season. So you can see how we're using them, how we're applying them, so that hopefully that helps you put them into practice in your own work. So the first question is, what are the characters literally doing? That is, what are their micro on the surface actions? Or what I like to think of it as, what are they doing with their hands? <laughs> right? If actors always want to know, what am I doing with my hands? And this can be a tricky question because it seems too easy, but it actually is this easy. Physically, what are they doing in the space? Jane Marple is showing her work while revealing who done it, how and why. Well, the investigators listen intently. Now, there's Sean just did the Hero's Journey 2.0 uh, seminar, and that we're recording in October 2020. That should be out, I don't know, six months or so, I guess, um, as, as an online course. And in the seminar, Sean is presenting his new view of the Hero's Journey. So this question he refers to as the action story component. So what's the, what's the movement? What's the, what are they literally doing? Uh, the second question is about the essential action. 
or as Sean is now calling it, the worldview story component. If this is confusing you, don't worry about it. When the Hero's Journey 2.0 comes out, it'll make more sense. So the second question is, what is the essential tactic of the characters? That is, what above the surface macro behaviors are they employing that are linked to a universal human value? So um, again, we, we already talked about this. Uh, Miss Marple wants acknowledgement and appreciation, while the others want to know that justice uh, has been done. Fair enough. Question three, what beyond the surface human universal human values have changed for one or more characters in the scene? And then which of those value changes is most important and should be included on the spreadsheet? So at the beginning of the scene, everyone except the reader knows who the culprit is. But we don't know, even the characters don't know why uh, the murderer killed uh, the, the women or how. So Marple explains it all in this scene. So they all go from unaware to aware or from ignorant to knowledgeable. You, you will come up with a number of phrases for this. The important thing here is not that you get the same answer that Leslie and I get. It's that you detect a shift. How you, how you articulate that shift at this stage when you're trying to answer these questions is okay. And you can brainstorm a couple of different ways if you want to, to just to help you think about how this works. All right, so this is a crime story. So even though they go from unaware to aware or ignorant to knowledge, because it's a crime story, if this is a core scene, a spinal scene in your story, see if you can think about it in terms of the the value spectrum for the story in this case justice to injustice so <clears throat> where where is justice to injustice happening in the scene in your own story if it's not there ask yourself why because it it, it means it's not going to work as well as it could or should or needs to Um, all right, so a clue about this is revealed in the five commandments. So in the spirit of mystery, we're going to come back to this in a few minutes. <laughs> uh, Leslie added that note. So I, <laughs> that makes me laugh, Leslie. Um, all right, question four is putting this all together and, and coming up with a sentence for, um, for, for your spreadsheet. And this can be as long or short as you need it to be for your story. What story event sums up the scenes on the surface actions essential above the surface worldview behavioral tactics and beyond the surface value change? Well, like, holy cow, the sentence you put on your spreadsheet might not even be as long as this question. Here's what we've got. Investigators and Jefferson learn as Marple reveals that Josie and Mark, <laughs> spoiler alert, conspired to kill Pamela and Ruby and explains how they accomplished their crimes, but also how Marple herself solved that crime. Leslie, uh, I'm gonna hand it over to you for the five commandments. Okay, so the inciting incident is after successfully catching the killer in the act of attempting to murder Conway Jefferson, the team comes together to hear how Marple solved the crime. Will it make sense? How can they gain the most justice? 
so you can see the progressive complications and, and how they escalate the stakes and all of that. We'll leave that in the show notes for you to discover. But basically, Miss Marple lays out the clues. She explains how Josie and Mark committed the crimes. Um, she talks about the vital clues and how the whole situation, um, how they set up the trap. Okay, so all of that comes to a turning point progressive complication, which seems to have nothing to do with what's, what's happening, right? Adelaide and Hugo tell Conway they're getting married. Now, Adelaide is Conway's daughter-in-law and the, um, and Adelaide is a widow, um, but she's been hanging out with Conway because he needs companionship and also because um, she needs financial support for herself and her son. Okay, so, but Adelaide and Hugo tell Conway they're getting married. So this raises a, a crisis for Conway. Does he disinherit Adelaide for moving on with her life? or not. And in the climax, no, he's giving $10,000 to Adelaide and the rest of his fortune will go to her son, Peter. So he'll be care cared for. And the resolution is that Adelaide and Hugo leave to get married. So we're going to explain all, have no fear, how these pieces that seem disconnected, work together. So Valerie, what is special about this scene? Well, we've already talked about a whole big bunch of stuff, but one of the things I wanna highlight is whether this is a, actually a working scene or whether it's a piece of exposition. Because, you know, we've touched on this, is, there's a lot of monologuing going on here. There's a lot of uh, loose threads that are being tied together. Um, and I don't disagree with the five commandments that you've come up with, but there's another way of seeing the scene. And I don't think it, even if you see this as a piece of exposition and not a working scene, it doesn't devalue it, which is really interesting because I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast has heard us go on at length about exposition is ammunition, no exposition, blah, no info dumps. Blah. <laughs> One way of looking at this is that Jefferson's, I'm sure he had a crisis moment, absolutely, but it, it would have been off screen or, or sorry, off page. So what we're getting here is the resolution of his crisis climax resolution or crisis climax. And now we're getting the resolution. He's announcing a decision that he's already made. So because it hasn't been dramatized in front of our eyes, the crisis part of it can feel a bit thin, which can make this all feel like a piece of exposition. I'm happy to accept it as exposition or a working scene, frankly, because of where this is in the novel and how it's functioning. Now, how weird is it for me to say that the core event of the story, the exposure of the criminal, 
can be a piece of exposition and I who have my opinions don't have a problem with that. <laughs> and it's because by the time we get to this part in the story, we have so many questions as the reader. We just want the answers to our questions. We're not trying to increase the stakes here. We're not trying to um, compel the reader to keep turning the pages. We're trying to clue everything up. We're trying to end the story now. And we want to hear how Miss Marple figured this out. And how else is she going to do it other than just tell us how she figured it out? I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. How else is she supposed to do that? Well, and I think crime stories are a bit, especially an Agatha Christie, Miss Jane Marple story. They're a little bit different from other stories in a lot of ways. Like you say, we should be, everything's decided for the most part, right? Everything that's happened has happened. And we're just kind of waiting for the fog to clear so we can see what the result is. And of course, a crime story is about the puzzle. So we have great focus on this, but a crime story is fundamentally about justice. And we raised the question earlier, what kind of justice are we talking about here? I mean, obviously the criminals have been caught, thank goodness, they won't be running amok anymore. Um, and the proper bodies are going to the proper places which is reassuring to, to the family members, I'm sure. But the whole point of the story, it seems to me is, you know, if we get down to it, is the human behavior, right? Agatha, I mean, Jane Marple is this great observer of human behavior. And Conway gets to realize that he was being silly in attaching himself to Ruby, right? That he should have looked closer to home for relationships uh, that are important to him, you know? Um, now, this might not be my worldview or your worldview, but this is the worldview expressed by the story. Okay, so we're gonna, we're gonna accept this as truth for the moment. Again, Miss Marple, close observer of human behavior. We're getting lots of quaint stories about her maid, about the people in town, about who's doing what with whom. And the crime story here is just, it's really the backdrop. It's a way for us to talk about how should we behave toward one another. And so the shocking event, the inciting incident is a way to wake us up and get us to look at our behavior and get aligned with what's right according to the worldview expressed in the story. And this is, this makes sense to me, so much sense to me right now because of Sean's recent explanation, further explanation about what crime stories are about in the, in the editor training recently. And it's to answer the question, 
how do we not destroy one another? And so the little lies that we tell, our failure to, you know, look closer to home, our willingness to engage in silly behavior, all of this is, you know, uh, like by a thousand cuts, death by a thousand cuts, a way of destroying the fabric of society. And we need to stop doing that, but we don't recognize it unless there's a big murder, uh, you know, unless there's a body in the library. And so to me, that's really what the story is about. And it's about Conway using these murders, other people's bad behavior to correct his own bad behavior. I'm just going to say that, for the record, I don't think this is one of Agatha Christie's best. No. Um, now, it's still better than most people can do. <laughs> Let's just be honest here. <laughs> but if I'm going to compare her work to her work, right, not one of my favorites. And one of the reasons is that Miss Marple is hardly in the story at all. And when I reread it, for for this episode that threw me off it actually distracted me because i kept in the back of my mind i was thinking where is she why isn't she here so it distracted me from the clues that were coming up on the page it distracted me from the story now would that have happened when the book came out no of course not i well i, I don't think it would have anyway um but in this day and age picking up an agatha christie novel that's a Miss Marple mystery, I expect to see Miss Marple very early in the story, and I expect to see her throughout the story in almost every scene as she is piecing, as she's hearing the same clues that the police are hearing, she's experiencing the same things that the police are experiencing, yet she's coming to a different conclusion. And it caught, it really did surprise me how little she's in the story to the point where at one point I thought, how is she going to solve this crime? She's not there. If we don't say you're, let's say you're not writing a crime story and you're not writing a cozy mystery, even if you are writing a crime story, why should you read this story? We, you know, we've agreed it's not Agatha Christie's best but the reason to me to study this particular story is that it's an easy way to study how to set up the core event, right? What are the clues that have to be established for this situation to be, to work out? What do you have to cover up? What do you have to reveal to avoid cheating? All of that. And that is why it's a really good model because you can see it all clearly when you go back and read it again after you know when you know oh you know who done it you know how they did it all of that then go back and read it again and pay attention to all the things that were set up right the teeth and the comments about the the teeth on the um on the the body in the library and then the comments about ruby the fingernails um and then of course the dress right so there are all these clues that you need to drop in without 
drawing too much attention to them. And that's precisely the kind of thing you need to do for any story to set up the means by which the protagonist solves the problem of the core event. So, and it's so obvious, as I say, once you go back and read it, that it's a good model because it's not all hidden. So it's obvious, it's kind of cheesy, but it's also a, a really clear outline of how do you set things up. To wind up the show, we like to touch on our key takeaways from the scene. So what do you have from this scene, Valerie? I think this is a really good reminder that even though we call these books uh, whodunits, there's two parts to this. Yes, we need to expose the criminal. That's the whodunit. We have to know who, who, who committed the crime. The other really important part of this is how it was done. So it's a whodunit, howdunit, one-two punch. Um, and that can be in one scene like it is in this novel. It all comes together at the end, that's no problem. Or you can actually have it in multiple scenes. That's not a problem either. It depends on what story you're writing and what serves your narrative best. The key thing to remember is that both parts need to be there, the whodunit and the howdunit. Excellent. Yes. So for me, the story is bringing up how we think about the way we think about our stories. And are we seeing only what's on the surface? So they're solving a mystery, right? They're solving a murder. But we need to be curious about why we're attracted to certain stories and why we're writing the stories we're writing because this is well it's the it's the functional equivalent of thinking like a lawyer which was a big thing in law school you know you 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 go through that grueling experience to help you learn how to think and and this is what we really need to do as writers to tell stories that are above and below the surface. So it's the key to everything really is understanding the way you think about your story and why you're writing the story that you are currently writing. And that wraps it up for this week. Remember, if you wanna become a better writer, you've gotta write and you've gotta read. Why not challenge yourself this week to take one of the ideas we talked about in the episode and use it in your work? To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. And if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel. If you want to see how we put story theory into practice, subscribe to the UnPodcast at ValerieFrancis.ca slash inner circle or writership.com. For show notes, blog posts, and information on the StoryGrid courses and guild, visit storygrid.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.